The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, September 5th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am Mike Pesca. Back from vacation, I was gone. Hurricane Harvey hit, and then it kept hitting. It pelted, it poured, it deluged, it beat down. It totally drenched thesauruses and everything else. Thank you, global warming. Oh, wait. Headline, National Defense Fund. Okay, National Defense Fund. Did climate change cause Harvey? Scientists say no, but it did make the storm much, much worse. Clearer still is E, the environmental magazine, a member-supported online publication by and for environmentalists. Was Hurricane Harvey caused by global warming? The short answer is no. No single hurricane or weather event can be directly linked to the general phenomena known as climate change. That point was hit again and again on the news. Here's the BBC. Nobody can say that any of these hurricanes are caused by climate change. This is the responsible and accurate thing to say. If you look at the trend lines, you see something perhaps strange, if you fully comprehend the planet-altering forces represented by environmental change. Let me give you an audio illustration of these trends. Here's global warming, the average global temperature over the last decade. And here are the number three and above hurricanes during that same time, the last decade. Now, let me be totally fair. My first slide whistle was the NASA global warming estimates. Here are the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration estimates. Notice the difference? They're slightly different. But again, number of major hurricanes were... Yes, I know, not all hurricanes hit the U.S., but even the stats for the entire Atlantic Basin are roughly the same. Significant rise in temperatures can't dispute that. Fewer hurricanes than usual. None, in fact, since 2005. No big ones. Why? Well, remember the no single weather event can be attributed to global warming thing? That is true. It's not just something we say like a Miranda warning if we're a bad cop. No hurricane can be used against you in a court of climate change. But it's thing that's actually true. But even if it is true, when you then suggest that perhaps this one hurricane that's horrible and terrible and global warming played a part of making worse, but when you say maybe this wasn't caused by global warming, a lot of people will angrily call you a denier. I know it happened to me. So it goes like this. You know, guys, not every hurricane can be blamed on global warming. Agreed. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So maybe this one wasn't global warming. Burn the witch! Look, I'm not a denier. I'm a science embracer. But hurricanes are really complicated. They're not as well-known and predictable as, say, planets or actual temperatures. In the face of scientific uncertainty, I don't pretend there is certainty. I look to other areas, like climate change and average temperature, and I'm even more impressed that there is such overwhelming consensus. And it is true, and there is consensus on this, that, like I said, global warming has made storm surge worse. That didn't have a huge effect on Houston, but it does make hurricanes wetter, and that is what we're seeing. But just as it is folly for global warming deniers to say, see, see, whenever there's a cool day in August, it's not the most scientifically accurate to say, look at Harvey, look at Irma. This confirms everything we've been saying about global warming all along. We as humans use heuristics. This one's called anchoring. Global warming is on our minds. It should be. It's real. It's dangerous. But we see any extreme weather and we say, ah, that's because of global warming. In truth, it does seem to have been exacerbated by global warming, the, the rain part of it, which was the worst part of Harvey. But 
it's not all global warming and there's so much that remains to be seen. It's like, hey, did that wall collapse on you because it wasn't up to code or because it's just a freak accident? Well, even if the answer is it was a freak accident, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a code or that codes don't exist or that we should call Al Gore code guy and curse George Soros. On the show today, I spiel about the DACA deal, deal or no deal. Trump says he cares. Mm -hmm. But first, let's check in on Houston and the other areas hit hard by Harvey. NPR's Wade Goodwin joins me. A note, the quality of his line changes a little bit during the interview, but they're still rescuing people by jet ski in Houston. You can put up with a little audio dynamism to hear about that, can't you? It was, by my count, 11 days ago that Harvey made landfall, but that's kind of a misnomer with this particular storm because for days and days it dumped a deluge of water on the Texas and eventually the Louisiana area. The biggest flooding that area, in fact, most of the country has ever seen. Wade Goodwin, NPR's estimable Wade Goodwin, has been covering it all from his perch in Texas. Hello, Wade. How are you? Hello, amigo. <laughs> Could you give me an update, just a, a today update on where we are with uh, Harvey and Houston? You know, it's things, I mean, especially in some sections of Houston, things are still actively flooding. In the northwest part of the city, around the Attics and Barker Reservoirs, there's, you know, active flooding going on. Homes that were not flooded are being flooded. Uh, there's active evacu- mandatory evacuations going on. You know, it's a very dire situation. This is a part of the city that if you put water into it, it's not going to drain away as it has in most other parts of the city. And we're looking at homes that could be flooded for weeks before the water goes away. The other thing that's different about this is that this was intentional flooding. This was flooding the Army Corps of Engineers did. They opened these gates knowing that this decision was going to do this. And, uh, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. Knowingly destroying homes to save more. Well, it's it's kind of deciding who's going to picking winners and losers. Certainly, I think they were worried about the integrity of the dams, but you know there are you know we there's a report in the Dallas Morning News today that talks about this Harris County Flood Control District report in '96, in which they said, "Look, this is going to happen if we don't do something, and we're about to build this new Katy Freeway. We could put this giant canal under it, and we could drain these reservoirs really quickly in an event. And if we don't," Then when we have a tropical storm, it's going to be catastrophic. And everything that happened in Harvey was predicted 20 years ago. And so there's now there are questions about since this is these, this flooding is a direct result of core actions. Are these you know these losses these essentially property takings that can be comp, should be compensated by the federal government? And so there are lawyers as we speak in these neighborhoods talking to these both residential and business property owners. So this reminds me, as it no doubt reminds many Americans of Katrina. You and I were both there. I remember we sent a, uh, NPR sent an SUV down, parked uh, on Canal Street. I lived in that for a day or two, and we were both in Baton Rouge for a long time. There are similarities and differences, but when you talk about the Army Corps, I mean, I don't know if people realize this, but the courts have found that the Army Corps is liable for some of the Katrina damage that's, of course, being appealed. But 
the decisions made by the Army Corps of Engineers directly impacted this natural disaster that, of course, had man-made elements to it. Yeah, and that's happened in Harvey, too. I mean, we now know. I mean, we knew that the Army Corps of Engineers had to make this decision about who gets flooded, whether it's going to be the downstream people or the people upstream and to the side of the reservoir. And they decided the downstream people were going to get it. So they open these gates in a huge way. And, you know, people are still being flooded out by that decision in Houston right now, actively flooded, water up to eight feet, 10 feet. People left pets behind. They had to get out real quickly. It was, it was kind of like New Orleans. That was, you know, New Orleans, it happened so fast and it filled up so quickly. I mean, this was, these put these people in a situation where you have to make this agonizing decision. Do I stay and, and take a risk of drowning or do I go and take a risk of drowning trying to get out? I mean, you lots, I mean, lots of people drowned on the road. So this, this section, this part of Houston where near the reservoirs, this is very much like New Orleans. And you were telling me that the guy who wrote that report had some uh, misgivings about not being forceful enough about what he recommended. He said he should have gone to his boss at, at the Army, or gone to the Army Corps of Engineers and say, I'm not leaving here until you, we do something about this. He didn't do that. He regrets it. And he says, would I have been fired before I got halfway out of town? Maybe, but we'll never know I didn't do it. And the irony is my house is flooded and all of my neighbors' houses are flooding. And it was by intentional discharge by the people in command and in charge of the infrastructure. So you know, we could talk about kind of negligence on the Army Corps of Engineers part in New Orleans, but here, this is a direct result of their decision-making. So I don't know exactly how that changes, uh, how this plays out, but, you know, it's it's definitely an intent. Now, I think about Katrina also and compare it to Harvey in this way. Harvey, thankfully, the death toll, it looks like it's not going to come close to Katrina's, which, if you account everyone who was maybe old and elderly and died during the evacuation or died in a shelter because they were away from their medicine, it reaches something like 1,800 people. And uh, almost 1,000 just drowned right there in New Orleans. Harvey is less than 100. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. I was thinking of the area of the flooding that hit New Orleans the hardest, the Lower Ninth Ward, happened to be the poorest area, the least likely to get out. It happened in so much of a hurry. But what else do you think is contributing to the death toll in Harvey not approaching Katrina's? It's, I think it's all about the geography. Um, in New Orleans, the levees were like became the sides of a bathtub that was filling up with water and it was going to get as deep as the levees were high. That situation just doesn't exist in Houston. It's just one big flat wetland. And so even though we got 36 inches of water rain and, you know, a period of a couple of days, that water eventually did go away. It, it made its way to the Gulf of Mexico because it could go everywhere. Uh, people got five feet or eight feet or, yeah, some got 12 feet, you know, the worst heart. But that that went away. I mean, the two days or three days later, Houston was back in their homes, most of Houston, and beginning to tear out the drywall and the floors. So I think 
that had a big, uh, a lot to do with it. Those levees that kept the Mississippi River out of New Orleans doomed that city once the water started coming in. Yeah, it's an underwater city, and one indelible image, or among the indelible images from Katrina, were all those air rescues, people punching holes through their attic because the water kept rising. I didn't see as much of that in the coverage of Harvey. Was that because there wasn't as much of that? Well, there were definitely people on top of their houses in some of the hardest hit areas, and because the flooding was so ubiquitous, they had to be air rescued. And that was certainly, I mean, here's the thing about There's a lot of conversation right now about how is is Houston's greediness to blame for the predicament it's in now. But I I just want to point out that Port Arthur and Beaumont, which you probably know pretty well, too. uh, Were you around for Rita? Yeah, I was there. I I remember I was inside a kind of under siege convenience store as people, I was standing next to the guy who owned the store, rolling tape as uh, consumers banged on his door. Yeah, I was there for Rita. Port Arthur and Beaumont, again, I mean, they went underwater in a way they just did not in Hurricane Rita. I mean, really, you could not get out of, in and out of Port Arthur for about 48 hours, except by air. And Port Arthur and Beaumont can hardly be you know, compared to Houston in terms of the amount of concrete or asphalt that's there, it's much more kind of like small, small city America. And yet it went under just as bad or worse than Houston did. I think that kind of gives some perspective to the notion. I mean, look, Port Arthur got 47 inches of rain. I mean, that's just good. If your land is flat, it just fills up with water. And that's what happened. Uh, And it didn't really matter about the fact that, you know, it was overbuilt. It was just simply underwater because so much had been dumped on it. Well, the other thing about Rita that I remember and the takeaway, which I think the officials remember, is the evacuation was worse than the the actual hurricane. More people died trying to get out, including a bus explosion. And uh, this time that was used as justification also, uh, for not evacuating, not calling a mass evacuation. Also, the fact that how do 7 million people effectively evacuate? Have, had, did they really try out uh, methods of improving, say, the contraflow? Because I saw a lot of pictures of tons of cars on one side of the road, but the other road not open. And that just seems like poor planning to me. Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, Hurricane Rita was a mess because it was right after Katrina. So here comes this another Category 5 bearing down on Galveston and Houston, and everybody ran for their lives. And it was just the big, world's biggest mess, as you've said, as people tried to get out of Houston and instead just sat on the highway and ran out of gas after 15 hours. Uh, so that was kind of a man-made catastrophe. So we didn't do it this time, but I don't think it's either evacuate the entire city or do nothing. I mean, I think that's a false choice. I think Houston could have done a much better job than it did by focusing on the neighborhoods that it knew were going to go under. I mean, Houston gets these kinds of storms periodically. It's no secret which neighborhoods are going to get flooded. Houston could have done a much better job of saying, hey, look, you've got to come out. You don't have to take them out of the city, but you can just take them to a place that you know is going to be safe for a few days. And they didn't try to do that, and I think that was a mistake. And I think they're acknowledging that they could have done that. Here's 
the biggest thing that struck me and that I would always tell people about Katrina, you have no idea how huge a role that rumors played. I was in the ambulance called the Arcadia Rescue Service. It's their private slash public ambulance service. And we drove all the way from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. And then we stopped blocks from the Superdome slash convention center because of rumors that people were shooting at ambulances. Those rumors were not true. I can't tell you how many neighborhoods, the number one thing that would be spray painted on uh, houses was the X with the number of rescue uh, bodies found. And the number two thing was looters will be shot. And, and the army was talking about people taking shots at helicopters, which was not true. And to put the blame on the chief of police in New Orleans, he talked about babies being raped in the Superdome. It created, I think, uh, a horrible situation for rescuers. And it prevented, in my opinion and observation, a lot of rescues from not being done. What were, what was the role, if any, was it different with Harvey? I think race, you know, reared its ugly head in New Orleans. Uh, underneath a lot of this was this idea that, you know, the savages of New Orleans had been let loose and they were running amok. It does not surprise me that this kind of talk happens when we're talking about black people. Um, yes. There was, you know, it was a whole different world. It's almost impossible to remember, but, you know, Facebook and iPhones and Twitter and that wasn't really happening. This time, social media played a very helpful role in mass communication in Houston in a way that would have been very helpful in New Orleans too, had it been around, but people could cry out for help on Facebook and someone would come get them on a jet ski or a John boat. That was very helpful. I mean, we saw the flip side of that coin around the rest of the state when last week on Wednesday and Thursday, they began to be this rumor on social media that the state was running out of gasoline. And everyone's saying, you better get to the gas station or else you're not going to have any. And so suddenly there was this massive run on the state's gas stations. Everyone's filling up their Silverado and F-150. And so we drained the gas stations all across the state. We went from normal business to having these like, you know, 1973 gas lines again. Yeah. So in the wake of Katrina, it fundamentally transformed New Orleans uh, large swaths of the Lower Ninth Ward never got rebuilt. The city is very different than it was when that storm hit. What do you expect will happen with Houston? It's going to be different. I mean, mainly, again, because of geography. I mean, in New Orleans, that water came in so fast and so hard and got so deep, homes floated away or collapsed. Or I mean, in Houston, that's it's really about you know drawing the line on your wall where the water got that high. And anything below that line comes out. So, you know, you have homes that the half, top half of the drywall is there and the bottom half's all cut away right now. People could get back into their homes quickly and start cutting that stuff out before the mold started to grow. So Houston is going to look different. There are lots and lots of people who don't have flood insurance. So I don't know how that plays out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to hurt the economy when we have people who would be spending money on, you know, consumer items, now every last dime has to go to getting new furniture or something, right? Rewiring the bathroom. I just don't know how it plays out economically. We already have a labor shortage in this state, construction labor because of the immigration crackdown. And, you know, a lot of the best 
construction folks in this state are Hispanic, either they're from Mexico or their families were from Mexico and from there's generation after generation, father to son is passed along these skills that <laughs> you want the like the most complicated tile work done on this in this state. Invariably, the contractors ask for Hispanic workers to do that because they know how to do it. I don't know what happens now when we are taking a situation where we already cannot build the homes that the construction industry would like to build because of a labor shortage. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about is the federal government going to use Harvey and the way that Harvey has pushed uh, undocumented immigrants and exposed them, you know, uh, are they going to use this as an opportunity to round them up? And the construction industry is saying, please don't do this. Wade Goodwin is a correspondent on the national desk for NPR. He is a Category 5 correspondent. But, of course, you really need to go by the internal kinetic energy of any correspondent. He's <laughs> off the charts. It's my Thank pleasure. Thank you, Wade. Thank you. Take care. Take care. And now the spiel. What a great series of guest hosts we had when I was gone. And in a day or two, I will tell you about my very favorite moments from this past week. From Dan Savage's masturbatory inquisitiveness to Leon Nafok's communist sabbatical. But let us now turn to a man who is neither inquisitive nor communist. Jeff Sessions was deployed to announce the administration's shuttering of the DACA program. If we are to further our goal of strengthening the constitutional order and the rule of law in America, the Department of Justice cannot defend this overreach. That was how Sessions sold the shuttering of DACA. Now, he's always sold it, back when he was a frequent guest on Steve Bannon's Sirius Satellite radio show. Either we have laws or we don't. Any exception to a law equals lawlessness. And he attempts to humanely tinker with a broken system in a way that the majority of Americans favor equals lawlessness. Any compassion, carve-outs, compromise, equals, you guessed it, lawlessness. To have a lawful system of immigration that serves the national interest, we cannot ha admit everyone who would like to come here. It's just that simple. There is an open, that would be an open borders policy, and the American people have rightly rejected that. See there, see right there? If we allow anyone, even children who didn't make any wrong choices by themselves. If we allow anyone who was illegal to become legal via executive action, that means we have an entirely open system and we have no laws. Black and white, all or nothing, law or lawlessness. Now, Sessions did make some points about DACA that I will put in the category of fair. It is not a great thing at all for the executive to do by fiat what Congress won't do. That's not the first choice. Obama said so. Sessions went on to say, though, that these DACA kids, 800,000 of them, some of them, you know, are in their 30s, but he said they're taking hundreds of thousands of American jobs. There is no statistical backup to that. He also said DACA may have caused an increase in unaccompanied minors caught at the border. The effect of this unilateral executive amnesty, among other things, contributed to a surge of minors at the southern border that yielded terrible humanitarian consequences. You know, there are a lot of reasons why minors, anyone, emigrates, the murder rate in your home country, the laws of the potential new country, and maybe rumors of DACA cause such immigration. I think this is a defensible statement, especially how he couched it in, among other things. 
DACA shouldn't have caused anyone to come to America because it only applied to people who were here before 2007. But what a coyote tells a desperate family eager to pay him to get their child over the border might not be entirely truthful. So yeah, it's plausible to argue that DACA inspired teenagers to come to America. An august publication called Slate disagreed, writing in the pages of that magazine, Mark Joseph Stern said, Jeff Sessions spews nativist lies while explaining why Trump is killing DACA. In truth, he made exaggerated claims, and in some cases, he had little backup. But that, the part about kids at the border, wasn't one of them, or wasn't one that should be considered a lie. Sessions made the anti-DACA argument more or less just as fairly as people have always been making every anti-amnesty argument, which is, we want to do everything to discourage illegal immigration and to not reward those who break the law. Now, in the past, that argument has also been accompanied by the administration who's making it saying, and we want to encourage legal immigration. But the Trump administration explicitly does not want to encourage legal immigration. The other fascinating part of the argument that Sessions was making was that it was Sessions who was making it. A couple months ago, Trump was chiding his AG as beleaguered, beleaguered. Now, oh, he needs him so much to do his dirty work. You know what? I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. This was not scut work for Sessions going out there to take the barbs that Trump wasn't brave enough to take. I mean, Trump might not have been brave enough to take them, but this was Sessions' reward. Eliminating DACA, really closing the border as much as possible, has been his goal for years. He's actually an outlier within his own party. He's the hardest of hardliners. But either you have laws or you don't, right? And Jeff Sessions wants the most restrictive immigration laws there are And now only a recalcitrant, dysfunctional Congress stands in the way of that dream. And as 800,000 young immigrants will tell you, a dream deferred sometimes does get its moment in the sun. And that's it for today's show. Not every Just Producer can be blamed on a single weather pattern, but both Mary Wilson and Dan Schrader were born in a crossfire hurricane. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. We don't know if prevailing conditions worsened his gusts, but they seem to have increased his internal moisture. The gist, Harvey and Irma, I'm just saying, Harvey and Irma, might not have been the best decision to be naming hurricanes after customers at Goodstein's Choice Meats. Wrath of God and all that. Oomperoo, deperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.